Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. Think about your brain as like an open source code, right? Where anybody can go in there and edit the code and write lines of code and we're not even aware of it. And so then all of a sudden you're an adult and you have these thousands and thousands of thoughts. You didn't pick them out. You didn't curate a nice little closet for yourself. It's just like whatever people have been throwing in there for 20, 30, 40 years. Welcome back to The Better Podcast with yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for high-performing women who want better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families, and want to hear from a woman that can take the complex science and make it easy to integrate into everyday life. Every week, I'll be giving you access to world-class scientists, medical doctors, plastic surgeons, professional athletes, Olympic gold medalists, Hollywood actors, parenting coaches, sex experts, and psychologists. I am always looking to answer this question. What are the simplest things that we can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and it is my mission to be the voice for women. Let's get better together. Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. And tis me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Before we get started today, I just wanted to send a massive shout out to all of you who have rated and reviewed the podcast. Um, Throughout the world, I am monitoring uh, the feedback that we get and uh, big up love to my Canadians. I am looking at the stats and we are consistently in the top 30 in all of Canada. So thank you so much to my wonderful homies, uh, my motherland. And I wanted to just highlight one of the reviews that we received from a fellow Canadian listener. This is from Corin Korakowski and her review, she says this, listening to the better podcast always gets me pumped. Through Truly thoughtful guest conversations, Stephanie is able to tackle health issues at both the macro and micro levels. The Better Podcast feeds my interest in not only the big ideas around how we can be healthier, but also the super specific practical steps we can take to feel better based on how our bodies work. Thanks, Stephanie. Well, thank you, Corinne. I really appreciate that, and I truly receive that. So I wanted to ask you if I can ask you something, not just you, Corinne, but all of my listeners, uh, wherever you may be listening, if you feel so inclined to rate the podcast, uh, if you think it's worth five stars, I would love that. And any commentary that you have on how it has helped you, I review all of these reviews and it helps me A, to continue to provide content for you. And it also helps other people find the podcast as well. And we may be in the top 30 right now in Canada, but mark my words, we will be in the top 10. So thank you so much for all of your five-star 
uh, ratings and reviews. They are much appreciated. And for those of you that I get questions all the time in terms of how you can work with me, there's two ways that you can really do it. The first is a little bit more cost-effective. You can go to the estimadiet.com and I've actually just recorded a new masterclass on the ketogenic diet for women. So if you are a woman who is looking to increase her energy, lose weight, uh, improve her immune system, all these things, improve her glucose and insulin sensitivity, this program is really designed for you, whether you are someone who gets her menstrual cycle every month or you are in perimenopause and that's changing for you or you are in menopause. We have all women of all sorts from all over the world and uh, all sorts of different stages. So that's estimadiet.com. Okay, on to the show. This week, I sat down with Kara Lowenthal. So Kara is a master certified coach and she has a BA from Yale and from Harvard Law. She's a lawyer, graduated as a lawyer from Harvard Law. In the last three years, after pivoting from her legal career, she has grown her life coaching business from zero to seven figures. She is the host of the iTunes top-rated self-help podcast, Unbleep, Unf Your Brain which has been downloaded over 5 million times. You go, girl. And she's been featured in outlets like Marie Claire, Mind Body Green, MSN.com, The Huffington Post, and she lives in New York City. So we sat down and we had a rich and robust conversation around the way that we think. So we started off by talking about the cognitive biases that we all have. And you can kind of see this in today's online forums where you may have a certain opinion about something, maybe a certain virus or a certain way that the government is handling things wherever you are. And then we seek out to continue to confirm those biases by only listening to information from one news source or only getting your information from a people with a certain um, underpinning. And while I think that there's nothing wrong with that, I am really of the opinion, I've always said I'm a really big amalgamator of information. I like to take bits and pieces from everybody and understand where people are coming from. So I actually like to, I get asked all the time, like, why do you follow this person? They have this view. And why do you follow that person? It's because I want to understand what their point of view is. So we talked about uh, our own, being able to identify our own cognitive biases, we talked about trauma, so past trauma, and how those can play into triggering us in the present and how we can be able to begin to recognize when we are feeling triggered in the present, how we can get out of anxious thinking and neutralize these thoughts. So I really like what she talked about. Sometimes it's a really big jump to go from being anxious to being serene and calm and chanting, but she talks about just moving it stepwise. So moving from anxiety to potentially evaluating the thought and trying to neutralize it. And then we talked about productivity, how to know what you want. This is so juicy for women when we are thinking about how do we know what we want. And I've talked a little bit about this in terms of desires on different podcasts, and she really frames this really well to how women can really get in touch with our desires, wh you know, what to do if we feel scared of our dreams, if they're really big, and if we feel like they're too big for us. We had a conversation around that. And we moved into self-improvement shame, which I thought was really interesting. This was something that I pulled from one of her podcast episodes. And I was like, huh, yeah, actually we do kind of do that where we, you know, you identified some goal that you want. 
and you recognize that you need a mindset shift or you need a coach or you need to do more exercise or you need to eat differently or, or whatever it is. And then this shame sets in about the need for improvement. Like we already feel like, or it's an egoic thought really, where we feel like, well, we should already know this. So we talked a little bit about self-improvement shame, which I think you'll really enjoy, and forgiveness, how to forgive, how do we begin to forgive ourselves, and what do we do when we feel like we want to blame. So overall, this was a really great discussion. Uh, this was my first conversation with her, and I thought that she did a bang-up job. And we have all the links for her um, podcast in the show notes. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Kara Lowenthal. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health. The list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres-ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. I am very, very excited to welcome you to the Better Podcast. I have been following your work for some time, and I was thrilled when uh, you and your team reached out to be on. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. 
I know you are a master certified coach. You are really big on retraining your brain and becoming aware of your thoughts and your feelings. And one of the things I've come to realize, and we've had a lot of guests on the show uh, that I'm that are very similar, as I just said to you in the pre-chat, in terms of philosophical underpinnings, is that your brain can be an unfair advantage if you know how to use it. And I think most of us are not aware that our thoughts are not who we are, that our thoughts and our feelings are just that. They are thoughts and feelings that the brain will randomly generate all day long, every day. And I wanted to maybe start off our conversation today by talking about where our beliefs come from and how do we begin to become awake to or aware of the idea of retraining our brain to be that unfair advantage that, uh, that I mentioned. Yeah. I mean, I think if you know how to manage your mind, you've got that unfair advantage. When you don't know how, it's more like an unfair disadvantage, right? Like yes. it's like, a, yeah. if you think about like the first person to, I don't know, domesticate a wild horse or something. It's like, once you can ride the horse, you have an unfair advantage. The part where you don't know how to ride the horse, it might run you over or like run in the wrong direction, mm-hmm. right? It's not even, it's not even just like, neutral playing field, you get an advantage. If you don't know how to manage your mind, I think you're operating at a disadvantage because you have no control over what's going on in your head. Um, In terms of where our thoughts come from, I think there's like a real mix, right? So there's certain, I think of it as almost like, um, I always forget the word, I think it's strata, but if you think about like geologists look at levels of rock and sediment, right? That like show how things have evolved over time. And I think our brains are a little bit like that, right? We have the most primitive part of our brains that we share with like lizards and, you know, the most primitive basic creatures. And that part of your brain is just very focused on like any threat, anything it sees as a threat and keeping you alive, right? And it's like completely unsuited for the modern world, basically, where almost none of our threats look like what it not, it's almost never something that literally wants to eat you, which is what that part of your brain evolved to deal with, right? Right, right. So it's like some of our thoughts, I think, especially the ones that we all tend to have in common or very similar to each other, come from that like evolutionary biology place. And then, of course, in modern society, there's so many other levels on top of that. There's like your family, how your family teaches you to think about things you know, maybe 1% of which is explicit and like 99% of which is implicit, just watching how, you know, whatever gets passed down to you about how to be a person or, you know, what's Mm -hmm. important in life or how you should act or how you should behave, like all of that socialization that you get at home. And then as you get older and you start interacting with the outside world more, there's like all of the messages the media gives you and everything you learn at school. And so you have these like layers and layers and layers of what you've been taught to think. So if you think about, if we're using like a very modern technology analogy, think about your brain as like an open source code, right? Where anybody can go in there and edit the code and write lines of code and we're not even aware of it. And so then all of a sudden you're an adult and you have these thousands and thousands of thoughts. You didn't pick them out. You didn't curate a nice little closet for yourself. It's just like whatever right. people have been throwing in there for 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah, right? all they it's had like me, going to the me yard. It's just yeah. like a... Yeah, it's just everybody in the world has been like, here's some stuff for your closet and you don't even know what's happening. You go, and then when you become, you start to do whatever, meditation, therapy, thought work, there are a lot of different ways of accessing your unconscious mind, right? Or just bring your awareness to it. It's like you open the door and you're like, oh my God, what is in here, right? Like I didn't, I didn't pick any of this. So I think you have to, the very first step is just 
any practice. I mean, I'm personally a fan of the kind of thought work that I do, of course, but there's a lot of ways that humans try to do this. But just starting to bring your awareness to what's going on, the thoughts you're conscious of are just like the little bit spilling out of the closet door and you don't even see like what all is behind there. Right. So you had the first step is always awareness, like learning what you're actually thinking, which most of us have no idea. It's, it's funny. I, I call them the fab four. I always say, you know, it's the mothers, fathers, teachers, and preachers, right? These mm-hmm. are the people that, you know, we needed love from them in order to survive. So we will adopt whatever they tell us about our worth, about our environment, about our role, you know, whatever it is, be it positive or negative, totally. right? And we will seek to reinforce those beliefs over time because of our hardwiring, you know, our neurological hardwiring in order to receive love in order to feel connected, to feel like you belong somewhere. So I, I, I love what you're saying in terms of becoming aware, because I've heard, you know, a lot of your work on your podcast. One of the, I was listening to one of your podcasts. Um, I forget which episode it was one of the more recent ones in preparation for our conversation today. And you said, you know, the brain likes to be right. So mm-hmm. your brain will seek out evidence that it already believes, whether it's positive or negative. So you could have a desire to become a doctor, but if you've been told, well, you're not really smart. Well, you know, no one in your family has ever done this before. Like, how are you going to afford it? You know, there's all these different things that your, your brain will seek to find those things and, and reinforce them with through cognitive um, bias, biases, right? We had, um, I had Jennifer Kalari, who's a, she's, she's a social worker, like she's a child, uh, expert, a parenting expert. And I was lamenting to her about my son who had my young son and he had come to me. And of course this is, you know, for any parent that's listening, this is just the worst thing that your child could ever tell you. My young son was like, you know what, mommy, like I, I've seen you, you love my older brother more than you love me. And it's because of X and Y and Z. So of course I'm like on a, like I'm on a puddle of tears off in the corner, like rocking myself to sleep. But I was telling her this and she's like, okay, so what you have to do is you have to make him feel seen and heard, right? Make him feel like his feelings are understood, but then switch it where you say, okay, so I, I totally understand how you, why you feel like this. This must be like devastating for you to feel like mommy doesn't love you as much as, you know, as much as you love, as much as mommy loves, you know, your older brother. But tomorrow, why don't you look for the opposite? Why don't you look for all the reasons why and how mommy shows you love? So this was done in a parenting context because I was like crying. You know, I was like, I had, I was in the fetal position, like, what have I done? I'm the worst mother. But is this, a, is this a technique or a tool that we can use on ourselves as well, where we can say, okay, so what's the evidence, you know, first, you know, acknowledging our feelings, right? Because we have to learn, we all have to learn how to feel our feelings. But can we, can we have a similar conversation with ourselves in order to overcome our own cognitive biases or in, inherited beliefs, inherited, you know, hand-me-down clothes, as you were saying in, in the closet? Yeah, totally. It's one of my favorite exercises because I think of like, it's like cognitive bias is this really, it's like having a very powerful car. Like it's going to go in whichever direction you aim it consciously or unconsciously. And so let's, you know, if you don't turn the steering wheel, it's just going to keep driving the way it's been driving. It's just, and like your son is such a great example. It's like, who knows where that thought first came into his little head, right? But then once it was in there, his brain was like, okay, I got my assignment. I'm supposed to look for evidence that this is true. And then it just kept going. And of course, such a gift he even said that to you and that you 
were able to respond, right? Because some people instead just think that thought for 20 years, accumulating right. evidence, right? And then it's right. like, gets stronger and stronger and stronger. So I'm constantly giving my clients the assignment of like, I'll coach them on something like, let's say it's, you know, my, my partner doesn't, you know, value me or my partner doesn't love me because they, and here's all my laundry list of evidence that I've accumulated for why. And I'm, and I'm always giving that, them that assignment of like, okay, yes, right. We have to always feel that feeling we have, but what if tomorrow you went and looked for evidence that they do love you? And I think especially with when we're talking about um, interpersonal relationships, we're always looking for people to express love the way we would express it, like whatever our thing would be. And unfortunately, we're often partnered with people who, or we're related to people who have a different way of doing it. So I think that exercise, it can work for anything. I do it for work too. Like go find evidence that your colleagues do respect you. Go find evidence that you can do your job. But I think it's so powerful, especially in intimate relationships of any kind, because when you open your mind up enough to look for the ways that people might be expressing their care or support or respect for you that just aren't the same way you would do it, Mm -hmm. you can see so much more, right? It'll be like somebody who's like, well, my partner doesn't love me because they don't plan romantic dates and write me poems, right? But then when they go look, it's like, oh, but you know what? They like always make my favorite breakfast and they always take out the trash because they know I don't like to do that, right? It's just like a totally different love language, quote unquote. It doesn't have to fit into one of those five things, but. Right. But that's what it reminds me of. It reminds me of the five love languages. And so my son, I think his love language is physical touch. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to use the, to use those five categories, it's like physical touch and the other one would be uh, quality time or it sounds Mm -hmm. something like that. Um, but, and I am both of those things. I am, I'm very physically affectionate and I definitely spend a lot of time, but there's, there's, you know, for whatever reason, there's, there's a mismatch there. So I love mm-hmm. in interpersonal relationships with, you know, whether it's a, you know, a partner, um, those acts of service, like I love it when I come downstairs and my water is prepared for me exactly the way I like it. Mm-hmm. And I have my coffee like that for me, I'm like, he really was thinking like my partner just loves me because he was just thinking about me that way. But I like to show love by like touch and massage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's how I show love. So that was a really, um, uh, it was, it was, um, a di- like, it was a way for us to sort of understand each other. He likes to do things for me and mm-hmm. I like to touch, like I like physical touch. So I love. I yeah. Love and I think people misuse that. Like, I mean, those five categories are fine. I think there's probably a million categories, right? Yeah. It's just looking for how your partner does it. But yeah. I think people often misuse them in the sense that they're like, oh, okay, I know my love language. So now I can instruct my partner on how to deliver my love language the way I want it, which for mm-hmm. me is not what's useful about it. Trying mm-hmm. to, sure, share it if you want, but like getting into a power struggle over trying to make someone express their love the way they don't naturally <laughs> yes, do it. I does not, yes. Yeah, that does not feel <laughs> loving as it turns out, right? To me, that's more like, it's like the Rosetta Stone, right? It's like a translation tool so that you can right. go and look for like, I'm extremely verbal. My partner is not at all, but he will totally like, make the water the way he thinks I like it, which like Mm -hmm. I had to go consciously notice because I'm not someone who that would be one of my love language. Like it wouldn't even occur to me. I'd just be like, oh, water, thanks. But now that I've watched that and I've done that on purpose, I'm like, oh, that's, he does the water because he thinks that's what, you know, that's what would, that's what would help. So yeah. But I mean, to go back to your original question, yes, I think that exercise is powerful for anything, right? People like, of course, I have so many accomplished clients who are like, I'm, who have imposter syndrome. It's like, I'm a fraud. I don't know how to do my job. Meanwhile, you're doing your job. You've been doing your job for 20 years. You've gotten promoted. Clearly, you know mm-hmm. how to do your job, right? Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. your brain is just always looking for like, 
it's like our brain, their brains are always looking for all the time. They don't notice any of the times that they know what to do, can handle a situation, know how to solve a problem, get something done, right? That all gets swept under the rug. They don't even notice that stuff. And they just are only noticing the times that they aren't sure what to do or like do feel anxious or do feel mm-hmm. out of their depth or someone does disagree or whatever else. So going through that exercise, any belief you have, if you can tell your brain to look for evidence the contrary, you will find it. Your brain just needs training. It's like a puppy, right? Like needs to be told what to do. Otherwise yeah. it's going to bring you, you know, like dead birds that you don't want. All the dead carcasses like, in the, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or it's going to like rip up the house, right? It's like a, a puppy that has too much energy. It's going to eat the drapes. Like you have to tell it what you want it to do. You mentioned imposter syndrome and I definitely want to double click on that because I, I don't know about you and I would love to know what your thoughts are based on your clinical experience working uh, with women, but I have found that this is, and I'm not saying that it does not exist in men, but it exists at a, at a rate of 100% in the women that I have worked mm-hmm. with. And you, and to your point, like high functioning executives, people that are running eight figure businesses and they think that they are the work, you know, they have this <laughs> debilitating imposter syndrome. Yeah. So do you think there's a gender difference in, and maybe it's socialization, maybe it's, have you noticed that there is uh, the frequency with which imposter syndrome is baked into the female DNA? Is there something, I mean, this is just my clinical observant. It could just be an N of one for me. But No, no, no. I 100% think, I think it's socialization. Like, I don't think, you know, I don't think it's genetic. Um, but I, yeah, I, I mean, I think we are raised in a society that even now, you know, of course, I think we've made progress socially. We have more examples of women in leadership, but we are still, when you think about it, it's like the feminist movement, the second wave feminist movement was 40, 50 years ago, right? It was like in people, my mother was alive when women in some states couldn't have their own credit cards and she's not that old. (laughs) Like it's not that long in social change time. Mm -hmm. And so yes, things are improving, but we are still getting all of those messages of like, Men are men are just kind of generically assumed to be competent, to know what they're talking about, to be smart, to be authoritative, right? And women are assumed to not know as much, to not be as authoritative, to there's a lot more of the like, I mean, you never hear about a man like, well, he probably got ahead because he was so good looking and slept with the boss. You know, it's never. like, that's not ever something you hear, yeah. but you hear that about women. Yes, less so, but I just think, I still think that goes that kind of talk goes on. It's just a little less socially acceptable. So I see this in all my women clients. And I think the other problem is that there's the like authoritativeness, respectability, smartness piece, like we're socialized, you know. Um, And then I think that there's the people pleasing gets mixed up in it. Like women are socialized to be mostly concerned that everybody likes them and approves of them. And so that really gets in the way too. It's like you can't really be strong in your authority about something when you're also thinking like, is everybody going to like me? Do What are they thinking about me? Right. There's this other facing part that women are socialized to have. So, I mean, I wouldn't say no men have imposter syndrome, but I for sure think it's more like women or, you know, I think, and men probably more likely if they are marginalized in some other way, like men who are LGBTQ or men who are men of color or whatever else. Like I think any group that's not straight white men gets that messaging. And they have, you know, men have their own set of issues, right? Like they're, they're socialized not to show ever any emotion. It's a right. sign of weakness, all those things. So I'm not suggesting that men don't have, I just, and that they don't even experience imposter syndrome. I think that of course they do, but I just have found it to your point, like 
every single woman and she could be insanely successful. Yeah. It has and nothing it, to do with it. It yeah. doesn't, it doesn't matter. Right. So sometimes I, you know, and I've had conversations, private conversations with women and that are, like I said, eight figure, you know, running these huge businesses and they'll say, you know, I think maybe I've, you know, I, I feel like I'm running on empty. I feel like I've, like I'm at the top of the ladder, but it's the wrong wall. Like I get all, I get all of these sort yeah. of self doubt. Did I make the right choice? And I've done those things myself. Sometimes I'm like, oh. God, did I choose the right career? Did I like, why am I not, why am I not this? Why am I not that? And, um, I, I guess the, the, where I'm trying to lead this is for the woman who doesn't necessarily feel empowered, you know, or she, maybe she believes in female empowerment. Maybe she is a feminist as, as I am. I, I am a feminist. I, I do believe that we are, we are uniquely, we are separate and distinct from men in physiological ways, which I've, which I've written about and talked about quite a bit. And also I think our contribution um, and the way that we contribute is also distinct, but it, it should not be discounted. So if someone is, if, if someone is a feminist and wants to feel empowered, but she doesn't necessarily feel empowered, what are some of the ways that she can move towards that and start to um, negate some of the imposter syndrome that often like I said, is baked into our DNA and it's almost sort of par for the course in terms of being a woman. Yeah. So, so many good things to respond to there. Um, I guess I, the two like preliminary things I want to say is I totally agree of, about men are socialized in ways that are screwed up for them, right? Like patriarchy is bad for everyone. It's yeah. just different patterns, I think. Yeah. Um, and in terms of, um, so in terms of the socialization, I think, you know, I actually think it would be, it's helpful to think of it less as something baked into our DNA and more as the product of a thought pattern that we're not aware of because that's where, like, we can't splice, or unless you want to think of it as like, and I'm a geneticist, so I can splice my own DNA, right? <laughs> like, however you want to take the metaphor. Yes. But um, I think, you know, with imposter syndrome, I like to really, a lot of my work, I think because I was uh I was a lawyer before I was a life coach. I'm just very like logical and analytical. A lot of the work I do has to do with like really breaking down the absurdities of our thought patterns because once you start to see the internal contradictions, it just becomes harder to take it seriously. It's to me, it's like in the Wizard of Oz where they pull back the curtain. You know, it's like once you take the mask off, it's just you can't take it quite as seriously. So like the matrix, like once Yeah, you it's like once you yeah. go through and see it. Yeah. So or like when you're a kid and you learn, yeah, like, oh, it's actually just a puppet. Like you can't be as scared. Now you know it's a puppet. And so I think with imposter syndrome, it's particularly fascinating because so many women have this thought of like, well, I'm a fraud, right? Like I, and when you really break it down, it's like, did you lie on your resume? Did they not, right? Did you not, are you not a lawyer or not a doctor? Like, did you, do you not have an MBA? Like, did you not go to the school that you said you went to? Right? What does that even mean? And particularly like, are you being yourself? There's no such, if you're being yourself, you can't be a fraud. What would that mean, right? You're not pretending to be anything you aren't. Mm -hmm. So there's all of the confidence building thought work that you can do and using cognitive bias to your advantage. And um, I do a lot of work on, and we can talk more about like how to shift thoughts incrementally using neutral thoughts. But yeah. I think with imposter syndrome in particular, it's like any, any thought pattern, the more dramatic your brain is being in a thought pattern, the more I find like a little bit of humor and absurdity helps. Like imposter syndrome is such a dramatic thought pattern. Your brain's literally like, 
they're, you're a fraud. They're going to figure you out. And it's like, but are you pulling a long con, right? Like, do, is your name not Deborah? Like, what, what is it people <laughs> are going to figure out, right? Like, what is the fraud that you're, this is not, you didn't bilk the federal government for $50 million. This isn't a fraud. Like, fraud is a legal term. It's not a thing you can be. So starting to like, Get, I mean, I think part of what happens with our thoughts is we're so afraid of our negative thoughts, right, that we like don't want to encounter them or spend any time with them. And so our brain gets away with just saying ludicrous things to us all the time because we don't want to look straight at it. We just try to run away. And so a lot of this work for me, I think, is being like, okay, no, we're going to sit down and look at everything in there. Like, I know it's a little scary. We're going to work on having our feelings, but we're also just going to start to look at this and be like, does that thought even make sense? Like, what what am I saying? Right. What, how am I in, like, I've led this business from seven to eight figures and we've done these things. Like in what way is this a fraud or in what way is this like, how am I possibly an imposter? Like starting to engage logically with your own brain. Most of us don't do that because when we try to argue with our brains, we like take our premise. We're sort of like, well, I am bad at my job, but let me see if I can try to like find a slightly better way to think about that. So this is a long winded answer, but I think um, starting to both work on more positive neutral thoughts, which we can talk more about, and challenging the thoughts you have and getting to know them, right? This is what we talked about in the beginning. You have to get to know what's really in there, not just try to – I think so many women feel burnt out because they've been trying to hustle their way. They're They're like, if I can achieve enough, I'll stop feeling this way. Right. Right? And then they get to the top of the ladder and they're like, wait, what? I still feel this way. I thought I was gonna hustle my way out of this. I remember hearing a quote, something like, imposters don't feel, if you are truly an imposter, you would never know what imposter syndrome is. Right. And you wouldn't be confused. You'd be like, I'm perpetrating a fraud. My name is not Deborah. I don't have an MBA. I lied about all of this. Like, it would be a totally different experience. You wouldn't be like, am I a fraud or not? I might be. Right. So let's let's actually go into the neutralizing thinking because I, I like this framework because I know that, as you were saying, we can be total drama queens. We can totally be saying, I'm the worst. As soon as they find out that I'm actually unqualified, they're going to fire me and I'm going to be blacklisted or you know whatever the thinking is. Right. So walk me through what neutral thoughts are, how we can, and how we can begin to use that and just this is really tying in what we've been talking about, about moving away from the schematic representation that we have, these cognitive biases that we have into something that is much more healthy and representative of, of reality. Yeah. Or even positively delusional. I mean, I think we might as well go all the way, right? We don't even, we don't even know what reality is most of the time. So we might as well think it's positive. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that one of the reasons that like life coaching sometimes or certainly positive thinking gets a bad rap is that it is um, too, uh, it's like can be too Pollyanna-ish in some ways. And it doesn't resonate for a lot of people because if you think about negative thought patterns as a habit, let's say it's like being your, your right-handed, you're used to writing with your right hand all the time. It's like somebody just saying to you, just believe you can write with your left hand and then it'll work perfectly. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's not how it works, right? You, if you've been practicing thinking that you're unqualified, people are going to find out, you're not doing a good job, everybody hates you, whatever you've been practicing thinking for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you can't, most of us cannot just wake up one morning, practice one affirmation and say, I'm amazing at my job and the best person to do it. Believe it right away and that solves our problem. Like if that were the case, we wouldn't have multi-billion dollar self-help industry and therapy and coaching and everything else, right? So- I work a lot on the idea of 
you know, I, I switch back and forth. I call them either neutral thoughts or sometimes I call them ladder thoughts. You're like laddering your way Mm -hmm. up, Mm -hmm. but it's basically a technique of learning how to number one, still you have to become aware of what those thoughts are literally that you're having, but then rather than just try to go to the opposite, coming up with a small, believable, often pretty logical thought that you can think. So for instance, in the body image context, one, you know, if you have a body part that you have a lot of negative thinking about, like if your thought is like, my cellulite is disgusting and it shouldn't be there. And if it weren't there, I would feel better about myself and all, you know, my partner thinks it's gross, whatever, all of your negative thoughts about your cellulite. A neutral thought would be something like, many humans have thighs that look like this, or most women have some cellulite on their bodies. We're not going straight to like, I'm an amazing goddess, right? And like, I'm the sexiest thing that ever lived because you don't believe that. And you're not going to get any emotional payoff from practicing a thought you don't believe. But you will get a little bit of emotional payoff from practicing a thought you can believe that's just a little bit less negative than your current thought. And so let's say you're dealing with imposter syndrome and your thought is, they're going to find out that I'm a fraud, right? Uh, the positive thought you can't believe might be like, I'm the best person in the world for this job and I'm amazing at it. Like maybe we want to get there, but we're not going to get there in one jump. Mm -hmm. But a neutral thought might be something like, I've worked in this industry for 15 years, so I do have some experience at it, right? Or like, I've been doing this job for five years and I've helped the company increase whatever, its revenue, its success. Like looking for practical, true, concrete statements that you can practice thinking they will not feel amazing, but they will feel a little bit better. And when you get that little bit of relief, you're teaching your brain that this activity is useful. You got like a little bit of either dopamine or just a little less suffering. And so then you get more buy-in from your brain. You create like a virtuous cycle. I don't really like the word virtuous, but like a positive cycle where your brain sees like, oh, it's worth doing this. It feels a little better. Let me keep practicing. Right. And then you can keep going. Is there any benefit in, so the example I gave you before with uh, my son was acknowledging those feelings. Like I totally hear and see and understand why you feel like this, you know? So with my son, it was because he thinks that I love my older son more than him. Can we, is there any use or any usefulness in saying, okay, I understand why you might feel like an imposter syndrome because of this long laundry list that you've just presented me, all the things why you're a fraud or whatever. But let's, here's, here's a way for us to, you know, and I, 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 I ask this because I have found this useful for me because when I acknowledge my own feelings, there's almost less resistance when I can make when I can stack up the evidence that is opposing to it. So if I say, you know what, that's just crazy that you think that you're uh, an imposter or you think you're the worst mother ever or whatever. But if I acknowledge the feeling that, yes, I actually, I understand why you feel like you're the worst mother ever or the worst whatever ever, mm-hmm. um, that you, in the same way that you might speak to a child and acknowledge a child's feelings that you're almost, it's, you know, you're almost talking to this like inner child. That's like, this is the, and we've, we've spoken to a lot of people where we've, we've talked about this idea of reparenting and and Mm -hmm. inner work and self-parenting and stuff. Do you, do you think that there's value in, in that as well? Like as the, the, the first domino and acknowledging the feeling, feeling the feeling, and then doing some of this, you know, what you're talking about is very CBT. It's very cognitive behavioral therapy. Like here's the evidence for, here's the evidence against, and let's actually logically look at this and see which one makes sense. 
Yeah. I mean, I think, yes, there's like, so a few things. I mean, number one, I think we always have to be willing to have the feeling first. If you, of course, if you are, um, and when I talk about a feeling, what I really mean by that is like a physical sensation in your body. And when we are resisting our emotions, we can never change a thought. It doesn't work at all. So when, and whenever I have a client who's like, well, I've been working on this for like two weeks, I've been doing these, the models that I teach, like we've been doing, I've been trying to change my thought and it's not working. I always know it's because they're not willing to have whatever feeling that original thought is creating for them. They're trying to push it away. And that just never works because you're just signaling to your brain that something dangerous is happening, that this feeling is dangerous, that we need to get away from it. And so you're, you know, that's that old therapy saying like what you resist persists. Like, so I definitely think it's, you need to have, it's always process the emotion, be willing to have it. Then you can work on the thoughts in terms of like that kind of phrase of, I understand why you feel this way. Yeah. I mean, I think there's like a lot of nuances depending on how you do this work for me, like a hundred percent, it makes sense. You feel that way because you're thinking these thoughts, right? Which is like a subtle, but important difference. I would never say to a client, like it totally makes sense. You feel this way because of these true facts that you've identified, right? <laughs> Which is totally not what you were saying to your son either, but just for the listeners, like, yes. cause it can, because we have such cognitive bias, you're, people's brains can easily like miss that distinction, right? And then they're just reinforcing their negative thoughts. But yeah, I'm always like, of course you feel terrible. Your thought is, I'm a terrible mother. My mother loves my brother more than me. Like anybody who thought that thought would feel this terrible emotion. It's totally normal and natural. It just doesn't mean it's true, right? Just because you have an emotion doesn't mean that something bad is actually happening. Um, and in terms of, yeah, I mean, there are similarities to CBT, especially in the beginning stages, I think, where I always want people to be able to grow to is like, forget what's even true, because we really don't know, right? If I'm just going to be, you know, the neuroscience on us, like hallucinating our own reality basically is fascinating, right? But if I'm basically just going to be hallucinating my own reality all the time, like, what's the most amazing hallucination I could have? Like, let me just go all the way. So, and that's the part where I think it starts to like, that's not so CBT-ish anymore, but I think especially in the beginning, yeah, and that's the sort of like thought-filling behavior cycle that a lot of the work is based on that like flesh out in some different ways, you know, is of course overlaps with that. And I think, I mean, to me, it's like people and cultures all over the world for thousands of years, right, have been teaching these same things. There's not really that many new ideas about how to be a human. We just are always... I think teaching them in different ways, explaining them in different ways, trying to fit them to the current cultural context, like whatever metaphors Buddhist monks used 3,000 years ago, they weren't using metaphors like open source computer and right. going to the town dump. And it's like, we're all just, I think all of us teachers, coaches, therapists, like anybody doing this work, we're just, we're using our own insight and our own experience of like some, a lot of longstanding human wisdom to try to help people cope better. I, I love that. And I, I think for men and women, women, especially, at least in terms of my observance, we hold on to those schemas. We hold on to those beliefs. So anything that challenges, because they used to serve us, right? Like they right. served us at one point, whether it was to get out of a threatening situation, you know, maltreatment as a child, you know, any sort of trauma, emotional trauma, physical trauma, sexual, and any, any kind of trauma that you can imagine these schemas, these ways of thinking were survival mechanisms. But at some point, I think we have to figure out how to 
you know, overlay the code, as you were saying, you know, like we can, you know, or uh, at, uh, amplify or step up on the ladder so that we can see the different stratifications in the soil. So this is like the foundational, this is kind of what got you out of zero to seven. And now we can uh, start to grow into the adult, you know, form that our bodies have grown into, but often our emotional and our mental states, we, we often stay as a little, you know, scared, uh, determined, stubborn eight-year-old, you know, emotionally and mentally speaking. And, and some of them we just haven't questioned, I think. You know, like some of the, it's like when you think about all the cultural beliefs, like people used to believe the earth was flat. It wasn't necessarily a trauma response. It was just what everybody believed and had been told, right? But, and people were like willing to kill other people to defend that belief. But it, of course, it turned out now most of us don't believe that anymore. So mm-hmm. I think there's like all different kind of, and you know, people I think are more, att- it's like, I think we can be very attached to thoughts for different reasons. Sometimes it is that like it was, served you at one point. It was your survival mechanism. So of course your brain's really attached to it. Sometimes it's like, it just seems so common sense to you because everyone believes it, Mm -hmm. which is why it can be so fascinating to work with people from particularly like insular communities that have different beliefs than the rest of the general world does right now. Right. Because you just see like, depending on what you're taught as a child is the truth that everyone agrees on. Right. It will shape your brain in so many different ways and it'll play out you know, as you get older and your reasoning gets more complex and you're applying these subconscious thoughts to all different situations, you're just like adding another layer on the edifice and like strengthening and shoring up that this is how things are, that whole perspective. But that's why it's also so freeing when you finally get, it's like you're hammering the little chinks in to let in a little light. And when you finally get to the point where that wall can collapse, Mm -hmm. It's just so mind blowing, right? To see that like the world may not be the way that you thought it was and that something different is possible. Like that's the to me, this work is really about like it's like emotional mental liberation work, right? Of like how do we liberate ourselves? I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. Well, let's parse this with a conversation around desire and wanting. Mm -hmm. This is a perfect time to get us thinking about what it is that we want. And I had a, I had a coach once who uh, was telling me you, you need to create. So I had, a, I've, I've had many people over the years say, you know what you need to do? You need to, you need to make a joy list. You need to make a dreams list. You need to make a desires list. It's always a list. We're very into lists. Life very list. Yeah. So <laughs> got to list all the thoughts. And then now we got to think about what it is that we actually want. And I think, you know, even just the current situation where we're, cocooning, everybody's at home. You know, I think that this is a really good uh, time for us to be thinking about, okay, what is it I actually want to do with my life, with my family, you know, whatever vertical you've identified that's important to you. So I often talk about 
things like, you know, your health and fitness, you know, your creativity, your intellectual life, your career, your finances, your family, your social life, all the, whatever you've identified as important to you, how does a man or woman move towards identifying what it is that they want? And I, I want to I just have a special cutout for women again, because I mm. find that it is harder for us to actually connect to that. So I've talked about this in terms of getting into your hips and dancing and physical mm-hmm. movement and kind of just moving so that you can start to create those, that sensory feedback mm. and stimulating that, those creative juices. Um, you know, that I, I call it big ovary energy, like, you know, your womb energy, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is the ultimate creation, right? So how, what, let's, I, I want to sort of punt that question to yeah. you. Of, um, so yeah. I think that especially with women, and I will say like, I used to work with I started out my career and I worked with men and women and now I only, I work with people who identify or as, or are socialized as women. So um, I think I can speak more to that, but I think that with my experience is truthfully that it is not actually true that women don't know what they want. What is true is that they have layers of thoughts that are getting in the way. Mm -hmm. And so I think that for me, the way that I think about and teach it is usually that figuring, figuring out what you want. It's like figuring out, which is what people say all the time. Like, I just can't even figure out what I want. It's like not the right term. What you are really doing is like excavating what you want or like uncovering what you want. Because every time I coach somebody about something like this, where they're like, like, I don't know what I want to do. It can be a 17-year-old saying, I don't know what I want to do with my for a career, or it can be like a 60-year-old saying, I don't know what I want to do after my divorce or whatever. Deep down, they do have an idea of what they want to do, but there is so much, so many thoughts later on top of like, what will other people think? And my parents want to approve, or it's too hard, or I'm not good enough, or I can't be a success like that, or like, I what about this thing? What about that thing? And so I think for me, it's more a process of like when, when people start with me and that's one of their questions, I'm usually like, don't worry about that for like three months. <laughs> we need to like learn the tools and learn how to start to parse all of these thoughts you have because right now you aren't even, you're not like capable of discerning it. You will, it's maybe discern is the right word. It's like discerning what you want or tuning into what you want. I think it exists down there. And honestly, I think sexual desire is the same, right? Like however we're talking about what you want, like for a lot of women, it's, of course there are hormonal issues, whatever sometimes people have, but it's often not that there isn't any desire. It's that it's so muffled by all of the thoughts that are impacting what you think about your body, what you think about your sexuality, what your thoughts are about your partner and what they do around the house and what the, there's like so many thoughts that are getting in the way. So I think it's like, there's a lot of static on the radio and what this work the way that I approach it is helping people and totally like embodiment practices might be some of it. There's a lot of ways to get into that energy, but I think like some people are scared to even go there or can't even do that yet. And I think that a lot of it is like um, clearing up those thoughts. And the interesting thing I found is when I do, like I had a retreat where I did a burlesque dance class with my students. When we go to the embodiment, we still have to end up doing some of the coaching work because what happens is people start to move and then all those thoughts come up, right? And then like all those emotions come up. So it's sort of like any road leads to Rome, like we're going to get to that work that we need to do. But I think it's a process of like, uh, of clearing out all that fuzz on the radio, which has to do with like what you think other people expect of you, what you think you're capable of, what seems reasonable, what you're good enough to do, all of that. It's rare, I think, like, but we're very committed to that story sometimes. I just coached somebody about this with relationships who was kept insisting she didn't know what she wanted from her relationship. 
And when I finally was like, okay, if he showed up on your door and he was like, hey, I'm all in, I want to get married, what would you say? And she immediately was like, yes, I want to do it. Right? I'm like, you do know what you want. You just, you have a conflict, which is that he doesn't want that. And you haven't worked through all the thoughts you have about the relationship and you don't want to let it go. So you're telling yourself that you don't know what you want. You do know what you want. Right? And that same thing happens with career stuff. I'll coach somebody, they say they don't know what they want. 20 questions later, it turns out, well, I've always secretly wanted to be a marine biologist, but it's too late and I'm not smart enough and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. So what would be, if someone is trying to get closer to their desires or what they really want, how, what, would, what would be the first step? So we've talked about identifying you know, cognitive biases that we may have about ourselves, but in terms of desire specifically, what's the first thing? That someone I like to ask a question like, if you knew that you, well, I mean, you have to, it depends what area of their life it is, but like, if you knew you could, basically, it's questions that solve for their unconscious objections. If you knew you could succeed at anything, what would you do? Mm-hmm. If you knew that everyone, I like to play that, if you knew everyone would approve of you and think it was amazing, what would you do? <laughs> right? If you knew that you could be happy no matter, I mean, the other reason that people sometimes get stuck, I think, in, in when they say they don't know what they want is that they're looking for a thing. They're looking for a decision that they think will make sure that they never have negative emotion or fear or regret in the future. So they're trying to make a decision now to prevent future emotion. Of course, that's impossible. So they can never land on a decision. And then their interpretation of that is, oh, I must not know what I want. It's like they've solved the equation wrong. That's not really the problem. So, but the answer is still sort of the same. It's like, if you knew you would feel good, and everything would be fine, what would you choose? Just that simple question is pretty illuminating if you're willing to tell yourself the truth about it. And then you can see, oh, so why don't I do that? And that's where you get all your thoughts that are getting in the way. Right. And once somebody, so somebody identifies, so the woman says, yes, I would marry him in a second, or yes, I would be a marine biologist if everybody approved of me and everyone loved me. So once they've identified what they do, what's the next step? for them to pursue their, is there a, is there a template or a framework that you have in terms of how they can pursue that goal or that dream? Well, they have to work on all those thoughts. So like, yeah, the, you know, I, I, there's um, a whole bunch of different tools, but it really comes down to like, so let's say you're the woman who's in the relationship with the guy where you're telling yourself you don't know what you want, but truthfully you do, you want him to be all in and he's not. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now at least we have the reality of the situation, right? We're telling ourselves the truth. And I think sometimes we don't tell ourselves the truth because we think that means then we have to act on it or then we'll have to be mean to ourselves if we don't. Or So I usually just start with like, okay, we don't have to take any action. Let's just tell ourselves the truth. I want, I'm all in. My partner, we don't want the same kind of relationship. Now what am I going to do? Let me just sit with that for a minute and like be with that truth. And then you, I think you have to start working through all of those thoughts to see. I don't think there's no... Um, I don't believe that I know the right decision. Like, I don't know that the decision is that she should break up with him. I don't know that the decision is that she should change her thoughts to like the relationship. Like, there's a lot of different options, but I think it's so contextual, right? We have to go through and see like, okay, are you, so if you know that you um, are all in and you and your partner don't want the same level of commitment, why are you staying in the relationship? Now, one person's answer might be, I don't believe I can find someone who wants to be all in with me. Okay, so then we got to deal with that thought, right? And then probably the answer is, you know, working on increasing your confidence that you're good enough and there's enough out there that you end up being okay ending it. But someone else's thought might be, well, I like the relationship the way it is actually, but like if everybody approved of this, I would actually be fine with it. But I think my friends 
don't think that he's good enough for there's like something else going on that's now we have a different probable resolution which is actually if you're actually okay with the way the relationship is and you just want you would want him to be more into commitments that other people would think x or that you could think you were good enough like then maybe the answer is working on your thoughts to actually be happy with what you have that you actually do want so it's just not you know it's so contextual but the answer is always like what are the thoughts that you can identify that are driving this behavior and how can you start to shift them whether it's using a neutral thought or a ladder thought or one of you know the many other like coaching tools there are in the world um and I think the first step is always just like being honest with ourselves without judgment, which for women, again, especially, I almost always have to coach someone on whatever judgment shame they're creating for themselves about their thoughts before we can even get to the thoughts. Yeah. Right? There's so, like the minute they recognize a thought, then they just immediately judge, the, judge themselves for having the thought. And right. like we have to work through that original kind of first level always. Let, let's talk about shame uh, and yeah. talk about guilt. I think, again, um, I, I use the phrase baked into our DNA. I just, you know, I don't mean that in a, you know, we are born feeling shame. Totally. Of course we're not. This is something that we learn. How does one go about start starting to release the idea? Uh, well, first, do you distinguish between uh, gu- feeling guilty and feeling shameful? And if, and if so, is there, if there's a distinction in your mind, is there a way that we begin to release some of that shame so that we can move towards what we want. And I, and I ask this because you, while you were talking about giving some of the different examples uh, or different uh, outcomes from your client, like she may be fine with it. You know, she may be fine with it and she just wants acceptance from other people, or she may not be fine with it and she needs to sit with that for a minute. I think it would be really, it, it's very tricky uh, because you could very easily convince yourself of either, I would be totally fine that he's not going to commit to me. I just See, I don't that. think that's, people have that concern a lot. So it's a totally legitimate concern, but I don't really think it's true because I think that if you were, when you, if you do the work and you're honest with yourself, the question is always why and why am I trying to push it towards a certain outcome? Right. And why? Right. Like if I'm like working too hard to be okay with something, you want to check in with yourself about why. Yes. So I think that that's a common response I get about thought work is like you could convince yourself to be in a relationship where someone beats you, right? And I'm like, no, we would definitely be questioning why do you want to be in this relationship so much, right? Like I don't, I, I don't think that any of us really um, stay in that kind of relationship because we've I – I, let me put it this way. I think without thought work – we are much more likely to trick ourselves into believing that um, we deserve what's happening or we can't have anything better or whatever somebody else tells us, right? That might like that we deserve what they're doing or that we're the problem. We're much more likely to believe all of that. Mm-hmm. Like I think that thought work is really about having your own back. Like you, when you develop your own self-compassion, but also call yourself on your own shit, those two things have to go together then you are so grounded in yourself that I think you are much less likely to, like, if you truly believe that you are okay no matter what and that you're good enough the way you are, why would you stay in a relationship you didn't want to stay in just to, like, feel accepted? You just, that wouldn't, you wouldn't have that motivation because you don't need that validation anymore. So I don't think it's, I think it's, it's only tricky when we are not being honest with ourselves, I think, in doing the work, which is part of the process for some of us, for sure, right? But you learn to feel it. It feels different in your body when you are um, 
when you have an agenda, when you're like, oh, I'm going to try to change my thoughts to feel okay with staying in this relationship without ever questioning why do I want to stay in this relationship so much? Why is it so important? Why is it so scary to think I wouldn't be in this relationship? Like, that's what all of that work is for. Yeah, I, I ask because I think as a society, we don't, we don't have the, the tools and the frameworks to feel our feelings. I think mm-hmm. that we are... Totally we completely dishonor, you know, in this pursuit of happiness, this society that values, I I don't want to say Stepford wives, but it's sort of like that. (laughs) Yeah. We think we should be happy all the time. All the time. And I think it dishonors our wholeness. I think Mm -hmm. anytime you feel sad or you feel, you know, there's some discord, whether you feel there's some disassociative feeling between you and the reason why this relationship is causing you angst for whatever reason, you know, the sadness, the grief, the dare I say, depression and anxiety, I think are always an appropriate response, but we pathologize the human condition so much. You know, we think that if we're feeling sad about the relationship or I, I, I'm, I want to be a marine biologist, but I just like, I'm, I'm X, Y, or Z. Like we have these, we run away from these feelings and we don't mm-hmm. know how to sit or even just make some space in your totally. body. So we sit with them. Yeah, I think people can use, I mean, you know, the human mind can use thought work like it can use drinking or Netflix to escape it, your feel, right? Of course, like we'll, we can use anything to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think that I think the way that I would say it is that um, I 100% agree that we, we have this unrealistic expectation that we should always be happy. And then we think if we're not, something's gone terribly wrong, right? Which is not the case. I've yet to meet the human who who has a normally functioning brain and is always happy, right? This is part, negative emotion. It's a big part of human life. I think the way that I look at it is that, um, but I don't think that negative emotion necessarily means something true about the world or what's happening to you, right? So I can be in a relationship and one day I'll have totally happy thoughts about it and him and I feel great. And the next day I'll have a lot of negative thoughts about it and him and I'll feel terrible. And I don't believe that one of those is like more true than the other. So I don't, so I, I do want to allow those negative emotions and have them and process them and look at them. But I, then I also think there's like, I have an episode where I talk about like clean versus dirty pain. And like, it's analogous, of course, you know what Buddhists would teach maybe about pain versus suffering. It's like some negative emotion, pain is essential, right? It's part of human life. Like, if we didn't love people, we wouldn't mourn them. Like if we didn't, right, those things have to go together. Without one, there's no meaning to the other. But then there's like unnecessary suffering we add on with our stories about how we're so terrible or other people don't love us or other people are wrong or people should be different or the world should be different, all that resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, and we still have to have those emotions. They're also just part of being human. But mm-hmm. those are the emotions. Like when I think about like what's appropriate to use thought work to try to shift I don't want to use thought work to like not be sad if my mother dies, right? Like that's a part of mourning her is going to, for me, some people might not feel that about their mother. I love my mother. I want to have that emotion. I'm not going to use thought work to try to not feel that. But I might use thought work on the pain that I'd be creating for myself with my story about my mother and how she didn't do what she should have done when she was alive and now she's dead. And so now I'll never get the, the apology I deserve from her, whatever, like that kind of pain is where I would use thought work. So I think, you know, um, that negative emotion is always a part of human life and we have to feel it always. And then it's useful to look at what thoughts are causing this and do I want to keep it? And sometimes the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the answer is no. Yeah. And I think our state 
also often determines the story. You know, like mm-hmm. if you wake up in a funk for whatever reason, you didn't yeah. sleep well or whatever. Uh, I think that the the at least I'm I, at least I'm speaking from personal experience. You know, my my state is going to determine the story that I tell myself about mm-hmm. my relationship, about my role as a mother, about my role as a doctor, about whatever whatever hat I wear. So I've I have often found. And I'm sure that you have a, a, a laundry list. So I'm sort of building up to this. Like for me, movement, mm-hmm. when I move, I get out of my head. Like I just get out of the limbic system for a minute. You know, I'm in my motor, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm activating my motor cortex, prefrontal cortex, the area that is involved in regulating and dampening these sort of uh, these ruminating thoughts. And I'm able to shift my state, shift my mood so that I can. So if, if it's a, if it's the partner, if I say, God, like he didn't make me my coffee today, like, <laughs> You know, what, what, what right. gift? Divorce you know? is coming. How dare Divorce you? is coming. Like, God, like, what did I do? Like, I must right. be the worst. You know, if I just get out, if I just do some yoga, I go for a walk, I, I do some sprints, whatever. Yeah. Then I'm like, you know what? Maybe he needed to wake up early today to do X, Y, and Z and just forgot. You know, maybe it's just like him being a human being. <laughs> do you find that there, so like that you would use the term embodiment, which I really like. So I find getting into my body, like just getting underneath my throat, which is, I like to live in my cortex. <laughs> yeah. You know? Don't we all? Right. Yeah. Is there, are there yeah. other ways that I think, like? Yeah. I think movement is good. Not, you know, not, and not everybody has like movement available to them in the same ways in their physical bodies. So I think it's good. It's not the only thing that people can do. Um, I think breathing also, like I will, you know, even, I, I think that there, when you get particularly, um, when you're sort of fear or fight or um, fight reflex is like really acted up, right? People sometimes it's a time when like some people have a very hard time even accessing their prefrontal cortex to do that kind of thinking, right? You have to like take down the intent, which is why processing your emotion is so important to like take down that intensity so that you can even like get your prefrontal cortex like back online, right? Mm-hmm. And so I often, um, and there are some cognitive techniques I find that work with that, which is sort of what you were saying with your son. They're, they're less about changing thoughts and they're more just like reparenting. Like I see you and that you're really scared right now or that you're feeling very anxious. That's okay. Right. It's just soothing. kind. It's like Mm self-soothing. Um, and then breathing also, especially for people who get physical manifestations of anxiety in the chest and, and their breath gets short. I think focusing on taking deep breaths often will like after, five, seven minutes of that, I find you've, you've sort of, just like you were saying, you've like self-regulated alternative things that could have been going on, which is like, especially when you become aware of it, it's so interesting experience, right? You're like, this is the only possible explanation. Everything is terrible. And then you manage to like breathe or go for a walk and then you calm down and then your brain is like, oh, I'm sorry. I was out to lunch. Here's 15 other explanations for what could be going on. I was, I was busy screaming, but actually here's like all these other ways I could think about this, Mm -hmm. which is why like one of the best practices you can have is like never send that text or email right away. Right. It's like let your wait until that part of your brain has like reactivated. That's like, oh, there's more than one way to think about something in the world. Yeah. Movement, breathing, some of that kind of self-talk that's not about shifting or changing is just about like acknowledging and safety, like you're safe, you're okay. And I think especially like, I'm not sure when this will be released, but we're recording it in the middle of the kind of COVID pandemic, right? And people are, um, it's unfortunate that the symptoms of anxiety and shortness of breath are also some of the symptoms of COVID, right? And so I'm doing a lot of coaching and people are like, get themselves into these spirals, right? Where they're like a little anxious, they get a little 
short of breath and sensation in their chest, then they start to freak out that maybe they have coat, right? And it becomes mm-hmm. like that cycle. So I think that kind of self-talk of like you're safe and soothing yourself or being is so crucial to help you distinguish between anxiety and whether you're having some sort of actual like illness manifestation, right? Yeah. I had a, I had one of my girlfriends was on the podcast a couple, it was probably late January. We were talking about essential oils, but we got off on this whole tangent around, you know, mental and emotional resilience. And the one thing she said, and this, I've been using this ever since. And it's so, whenever I'm feeling like, you know, he forgets like Giovanni, my partner forgets to make me the coffee. And I'm like, that's it. We're getting divorced. Right. Obviously. Like the, obviously, (laughs) right. The question, the question that I, like that she taught me, which is so simple, but it's hilarious. It's like, am I tired? Oh yeah. Am I hungry? My more is like, do you need a snack? You probably need a snack. (laughs) Like, is that, are you tired? Is this, you know, maybe if you just took a little nap, like just power down for a second. Totally. It's important to know what your thing is. Mine is like, I'm always like, I have a particular friend, Kelly, that will always text each other. Like I almost quit my job, but then I had a sandwich and it turned out everything was okay. Yeah. It's just (laughs) You have to like know your, yeah, I'm a big fan of the 10 minute cat nap sometimes to just reset. It's just like breathing for, it just like resets my brain. Then I wake up and I'm like, oh yeah, okay. All right. Yeah. But hungry, crank, tired, like any of those I think can really make you there. I saw a great meme. I can't remember how it goes, but it was basically like, if you're, if you hate everyone, you're probably hungry. If you, this, you probably need a nap. (laughs) Just make sure your physical state is like in some equilibrium and then you have the resources to do the mental work. I uh, just to touch on coronavirus and the pandemic. Now, I think that the you know the there is an opportunity. There's really two pandemics happening, right? There's one which mm-hmm. is the virus and the global economic whatever, which I cannot speak to. Mm-hmm. But there's also this mental and stress mm-hmm. pandemic that's happening. Totally. And what I'm noticing, particularly from friends who lived through and had financial ruin in you know 2007, 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. There's the there's almost like this re-triggering mm-hmm. that's coming mm-hmm. up. People are flipping out. Um and it can be unpredictable. Like I've seen, you know, f- that I'm I mean, it's just for me observing online too. So there could be also just the bias of me not understanding tone because I'm seeing the way that people mm-hmm. are just writing things. But you know, be it, you know, economic trauma or just having you know been through a scenario like this before. Is there is there a way for us to become awake to when we feel triggered? Because mm-hmm. something I'm seeing a lot, and I, I'm as you said, if you're coaching a lot on it now, are you seeing people becoming and tri- being triggered is completely like un. There, there's something about this whole situ- situation that, at least for a, a recovering, you know, perfectionist like myself, mm-hmm. there's something unnerving about it. Like there's something where I don't like my control being taken away from mm-hmm. me, and I think that that's also a trauma response, right? Um, is there is there a way that we can begin to recognize when we are being triggered and how we are being triggered? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's so interesting. My experience with what's going on with people in this pandemic is that, in terms of the psychology, is that your brain doesn't, I don't think, um, change on a dime. So it's like whatever people were worried about before, they're still worried about. It's just like volume dial has been turned up and they're attaching it to the pandemic, right? right? So it's like I've, I see people whose businesses have had to close down who are like, I'm going to figure this out. I always get through things, blah, 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 right, whatever. And the, but the people who were worried about money before the pandemic are now freaking out about money even if they still have their jobs. 
So to me, that's been the most, and I think has been the most helpful for my clients is like when you are feeling that kind of like anxious spiral feeling, right? Really looking at it takes a lot of the wind out of the sails because I think your brain is like, listen, there's a pandemic. Everything is different. Now, every thought I have is 100% true. It's like your brain has been this like sketchy, you know, like bad witness that's always lying, but it's like, now there's a pandemic. Every scary thought I have, we have to believe. Don't doubt me at all. Don't be skeptical. Like it's it's an emergency. I'm in charge, right? That's that's not the useful part of your brain. Mm -hmm. So even just being like, oh, interesting. Like I used to have regular health anxiety and now I'm worried about my health in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I used to like, I noticed this in my own brain. The part of my life I've been working on the most intensely is my romantic relationship and partnership. And like, as soon as this happened, my brain was like, let's think obsessively about how this will impact our relationship, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, that's not the most obvious logical danger to worry about, but because that's the habit I had, that's where my brain went. Mm -hmm. So I think like partly that first step is just being like, okay, I see that this feels very urgent and real. And I think the reason it's so challenging for people is not just like the circumstances change, but then normally when you're having a freak out about your life, everybody around you is doing their own thing. Right now, everybody's having a collective freak out. And there's usually like if I'm, you know, stressed about money, it's not like I go on Facebook and every single post is everybody else agreeing with me that there's not enough money in the world. Right. Right. But now that's what's happening Mm -hmm. is that whatever your thoughts are, social media and the news are amplifying them and we're all like glued to them even more. So Mm -hmm. I think like just, I think, you know, you're being triggered when you just start to feel that physical, like physical and mental agitation, right? When your Mm -hmm. thoughts start racing, when your body starts feeling, um, and I'm, I mean, I think I'm talking in a like non, obviously if you have clinical PTSD, then your triggers may manifest differently. I mean, I think we're talking about it in kind of a little bit more of a layperson way. Um, but I think like just remembering that, no, like it's the same thing, bringing that awareness, like what is my brain saying? Like, mm-hmm. is it really true? Like what's true right now? It's, ba- it's that same physical grounding also. Like most of us right now are physically safe. Most of us right now are physically well. Even if you're not physically well, like if you're thinking about this, you're not dead. Like where are you in your body? Like how can you ground back and stop that? Like it's like we're all engaged in a giant collective catastrophizing right now about the future. Yes. And like how, and I think the solution to catastrophizing is always twofold. It's like playing it out all the way mentally and grounding physically to where we really are right now. And like different people, I think, have to do those in different orders. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Great advice. I love that. I, I often find too, when when I myself feel anxious, I get all like verklempt in my, you know, mm-hmm. in, in my throat. Like I have a lot of pressure in my throat. Mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe that's for me, you know, <clears throat> not speaking up when I, you know, what, whatever manifestation that is, but I become aware if I'm being mm-hmm. triggered by something, there's like this closing in that I feel where mm-hmm. I, I have the, I have the, the words, uh, but they don't like the vocal cords mm-hmm. are not going to come together to make the sound, you know? So interesting. Yeah. Everybody's bodies are so different in how they, mine is very like, in the chest. It's like that anxiety, which is why I've been doing a lot, even on myself of being like, okay, like let's learn to distinguish between what anxiety feels like and like what's actually medical. <laughs> like These are not the same thing. Yes. Yeah. Mine is very chest, like tightening in the chest. And it's subtle too, right? Like, it, mm-hmm. it, and it's so quick. This is why I love what you were saying about breath work. I, uh, I have picked up meditation um, pretty 
steadily uh, in the past year. And it just gives me that little bit of space between like mm-hmm. when I want to react and when I want to scream and when I want to get triggered to like, yeah, just allow for my PFC or my prefrontal cortex to be like, okay, just, 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 just hold on. Don't send the text. Yeah. Don't just <laughs> right. Calm, right? And the interesting thing about anxiety when I, when I hear or when I see what's being written is people always, anxiety is almost like a, it's like a wind up around the future. Totally. So yeah. they always are thinking about like next week, if this doesn't change, I'm going to run out of money or, you know, if this doesn't mm-hmm. stop in, in a couple of weeks, then I'm going to have to do X, Y, or Z. So it's, the the breath work really brings you into the right now. So just to, you know, echo back to you, you said, you know, you're right now I'm safe. There's no bear. There's no tiger in the room. Okay. I know everyone's watching something with tigers on Netflix. I don't know, but there's no actual. <laughs> yeah, me neither, but I've seen that too, right? I'm not going to be eaten. I don't get it, but whatever. Yeah. We're talking about some tiger thing, but. Yeah, you're physically safe. And I think like, I actually tend to, with it's catastrophizing is a funny thing because it's like you were saying earlier, like if you just say to yourself, oh, that's crazy, it doesn't work, right? Because especially this part of your brain that evolved to just look for danger is like, no, no, I guess I should scream louder because you're not listening about how there's danger, right? Yeah, yeah. But I really like to take it all the way. And I think that the, I'm not saying like, yay, a pandemic happened. Obviously, I not, that's not my thought. But I do think that it's giving us this opportunity, right, to engage with what is always true, which is that we don't get to control our health and when we live or die, right? And so- playing, and I don't say that to be flip, I think it's the most serious, like more philosophical work in the world, emotional work in the world is our own mortality. So, but like when, when somebody's brain is catastrophizing, I always think it's like the brain goes 80% of the way, but not all the way, right? It's like, you might lose your job and then we just die in the street, right? It's like, we really have to go. And so cognitively, I think it's useful to go all the way. Okay. What happens if I lose my job? Actually, what do I do? How would I deal with it? What happens if I get sick? how will I deal with it, right? What happens if I do have to go to the hospital? Like playing it all the way out, not in a way where you are thinking about your own agency. Like when we're catastrophizing, I think we're just watching it. Like it's this terrible movie that's going to happen to us and we're going to have nothing. We're going to have no agency. We're not going to be able to do anything. We're not going to be able to think or feel. Like it's just going to be, it's like watching a scary movie. And so playing it out in a like, what would I actually do? How would I want to think and feel then? How would I handle this? We're all more resilient than we think we are. We have to like tap into that ahead of time so that you have that trust with yourself of if the worst thing happened, I will deal with that when that happens. And I like trust myself to handle it. Mm, That's great. There was a podcast episode I wanted to talk to you about, which I thought was so so, so interesting. And you were talking about uh, this idea of self-improvement shame. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about what we've talked about today. We're talking about, you know, how we can neutralize our thoughts, how we can become awake to these cognitive biases that we've either inherited or that we have about ourselves, um, how we can get to understand and know what we really want, how to be able to understand our triggers. And let's say the person makes the decision and they say, okay, I want to become a marine biologist. Mm-hmm. Like that's the thing I really want. So that means I have to go back to university and take my qualifying science courses or you know whatever whatever yeah. the steps that you've laid out in order to fulfill the dream or the goal that you have. And I've never heard of this before, but I've experienced it. So I was really appre- I really appreciated this episode that you did um, around self-improvement shame. So walk us through what that is and mm-hmm. what happens. And then again, the tools, the frameworks, how we can sort of circumvent that and say, okay, like 
it's okay. So at least for me, I have had for the longest time a hard time being, it's hard for me to be a beginner because mm-hmm. once I've mastered everything, it's like, it feels so good. And you know, you sort of mm-hmm. marinate in that proficiency. Um, so to, to suck, like to be willing to <laughs> suck is hard for me. Yeah. And we're, I work on it, you know, I'm, I'm always a work in progress, but let's talk about self-improvement shame, uh, what it is and, and how we can become aware of it and work through it. Yeah. I mean, so the way that I, what I mean when I say self-improvement shame is really, um, it's sort of, there's twofold. The first level is when you are motivated to try to change out of shame, right? So you're like, well, I want to not yell at my kids as much because right now when I do, I tell myself I'm terrible. So if I just could learn to stop yelling at my kids, then I would feel good about myself, right? So you're trying to use, and I think a lot of us come to self-improvement or self-help or spiritual work out of that impulse. So it's not wrong as what leads you there, but that is how a lot of us get there is like, I want to finally feel good about myself. So let me like work on myself and improve myself enough to finally feel good about myself. The problem is that if that's how you get there and you don't pay attention to that pattern, you just immediately start doing that and applying it to your own attempts at self-improvement, right? So you're like, let's say you, you learn, you sign up to work with me and you learn the coaching model I teach and then you start sh- judging and shaming yourself for not being perfect at using the coaching technique, right? You start judging and shaming yourself for still having negative thoughts, which of course you're a human, you're going to have them forever, but you've conveniently forgotten all the times I've said that part, right? (laughs) And your brain is just only fixated on how you should be doing it perfectly. So I think it's a, it's a funny thing because that's, that original shame does lead people to, I think, the opportunity for incredible spiritual and growth work. But it's like you came in on a, coal chugging train. (laughs) You have to like know, use the work to notice that's what brought you here and then start to work on shifting that. So otherwise you just, otherwise like whether it's therapy or meditation or yoga or coaching, whatever it is, you just start to use it the same way you use anything else, which is to beat yourself up, tell yourself you're not good enough, try something, not be perfect at it, fail and then give up forever, right? You'll just execute your same patterns and it won't be that helpful because you're just manufacturing. You You shouldn't do it. Yeah. You're just manufacturing more guilt and shame, you know? And I see this, I have uh, my feminist coaching community is called The Clutch and we have a Facebook group. So I see like all the posts, right? And so many of the posts start out with like, I, you know, I'm like, I should have this figured out by now or like, I'm not, you know, this, I, I don't have the model that we use completely correct or like feeling bad or guilty about that or ashamed. And then of course it's so kind of productive because you're learning how to do something new. If you shame yourself, you're not receptive to feedback, right? You can't learn how to do it well because you're, you feel so, it's like a lightning rod. You feel so ashamed if anybody points out where you're, you have a blind spot. Mm -hmm. So it just makes it so much harder to actually learn about yourself because you're judging yourself all the time. So the, the antidote is the first and most important coaching tool in the whole world is just compassionate observation of yourself, right? And so noticing how often, I mean, I think most of us are just not even aware how often we're having self-judging thoughts because we just think they're true, right? We're just like, well, I am bad at this. I should be better, Mm -hmm. right? A better mom wouldn't yell at her kids. Like I haven't given, I haven't worked enough on the clutch materials. Like we just think those are facts. So the first tool is just becoming aware, paying attention I mean, writing, this is why I always recommend like writing down your thoughts, but even if you're just thinking them, like just noticing how often you are 
sometimes I just say like, what, look for how often you're evaluating yourself, right? Like that's a good stand-in because most of our evaluations of ourselves are negative, right? Look yeah. how often you are like deciding whether you did something well or poorly, deciding whether it was good or bad, deciding if you did enough or not. Like just notice how often you are evaluating yourself. And then I think the second part is working on using thoughts that help you develop that self-compassion, which aren't always, which are, you know, not everybody's ready for like, I love and accept myself completely right away, right? That's why we start with latter thoughts like many mothers yell at their kids, even though they love them, right? Or I notice that I'm judging myself. Lots of people judge them because then they'll start judging themselves about the judging, right? It can be endless. So Mm -hmm. you have to practice, number one, bringing your awareness to how often you're judging or evaluating yourself. And then number two, coming up with a thought that you can practice that helps you notice that that's happening. And I really teach that for me in my work, your thoughts are not moral. They don't have any moral value. They don't mean anything about you as a person. They're just electrical signals in your brain that are created by all of your conditioning. And so if you can start to believe that and practice seeing them that way, then you'll be able to observe them with more curiosity, right? If you're not ready for compassion, maybe you can try curiosity rather than judgment. If your thoughts don't mean anything about you as a person, then it's okay for you to have whatever thoughts you're having. And that's how we can start to become more aware of them, get to know them, and that's when we can start to change them. I like that too. And if even if that doesn't work, at the very least, you can tell yourself, you know, your brain is the most associative organ that you have. (laughs) So you can start to associate a new meaning with Mm -hmm. it. And I think that this comes at a really wonderful time because there's a lot of mothers right now that are homeschooling. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. That are I mean, and I'm I'm in that. I am completely unqualified grade four and grade two teacher (laughs) right now. And I say that in jest, but it's it's interesting because the, the, the stories that are coming up for me, like I know it's like, oh yeah, like you have to, why, why am I, and I've been, there's been moments where I've been much more frustrated with my kids than I normally am mm-hmm. because I'm, you know, they're all of their, um, habits because they're at home, you know, they're not in the different environment at school where right. they have associated with learning and, you know, there's rules in the school and all this kind of stuff. They're just like on the couch and they're flying <laughs> off the couch and they're, fly, you know, so right. I'm trying to figure out how to help them associate home now mm-hmm. being school. And I'm also doing work from home and I'm trying to get, so there's this meme that I saw the other day and I, I literally howled because it was a <laughs> picture of Dolly Parton her nine to five is like not working nine to five. It's like oh, nine to nine ten, <laughs> and then nine sixteen to nine thirty two, right. and that's how that's how it feels. Yeah, totally. And it can be really egoic for. There's almost this like egoic. Uh, mm-hmm. fantasy that you're just going to get it. Like you just should be a good homeschooler. You just totally. should be able I call to- these perfectionist fantasies. I have a whole episode about perfectionist fantasies. And yeah, somebody just posted the clutch the other day, like perfectionist fantasy homeschooling, reality homeschooling, right? Yeah. And then we judge ourselves for not living up to our perfectionist fantasies, even though they were always fantasies, always. right? But we don't know that. We think that's how we're supposed to be. And then we judge ourselves. So learning how to recognize those. And if this resonates for people. I have a whole episode about it if you recognize yourself. But any kind of like all of these fantasies of how it's like my favorite thing about perfectionists is none of them think they're perfectionists because their thought is, well, I don't do things perfectly. Mm. So I'm not a perfectionist. Mm -hmm. Like the amount, if I didn't nickel for every time I've heard that, Mm -hmm. right? But of course, no, it's the whole point is that you think there is a perfect that you could or should be doing. That's what makes you a perfectionist, right? Right. 
and that whole, and I think that's coming up for people a lot now. Yeah. Now people are supposed to be somehow doing their jobs and doing all the childcare and doing all the cooking and cleaning because you can't go out. And I mean, right. It's impossible. You can't do 17 jobs at once, but we have this. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how quickly that can come up, but it's since this experience didn't exist more than three weeks ago, but it's just your old brain pattern being like, Oh, you should be perfect. Here's a whole new place to apply that to. Right. Right. Why don't you plug your podcast? And uh, if people want to find more about you, about your programs, where can, where can people find you? Yeah. Uh, my podcast is called, is it okay to curse on this? I wasn't sure. It's okay. Know. Yeah, it's good. It's okay. <laughs> I've been restraining myself. Usually I curse like a sailor. Um, <laughs> my podcast is called unfuck your brain obvious reasons. Uh, and you can find it wherever you find podcasts. And I talk on the podcast about The Clutch, which is my feminist coaching community, how to work with me. But so you can find that all there. But I would check out if anything I've said has made your brain go, huh, wait a minute. Then I would check out the podcast is always the best place to learn more. And on Instagram, social, are you? Oh, yeah. Um, my, it's just my last name is like such a pain to spell that. <laughs> but it's uh I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. Uh, if you look at the title of this episode, maybe it'll have my name on it. It's a long one to spell, but there's only one of me in the world. So if you Google me, my Instagram is at Cara Lowenthal. Same thing on Facebook. Just look for my name. And I'll have all this information in our show notes as well for uh, listeners that are interested. There you go. Well, I wanted to thank you. This has been a wonderful uh, conversation. I, uh, it's, it's, it's really fun when you sit down with someone and you just get along so well. I feel like I could talk to you for totally. you know, another couple hours. It's been <laughs> wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, and, my pleasure. Yeah, I wanted, wanted to thank you for your time today. And uh, I hope that the listen, like people who are listening, that you will find this incredibly useful. And you know, if there's one sort of takeaway here is that you can change, right? Like you are not, you know, destitute to have this, uh, you know, unadaptable, static mind and thought pattern, you, there are ways that you can change. And we've discussed a lot of great ones today. So thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. I think that's the most important thing, right? People think they can train their dog, but that they can't change their own brain can definitely change at any age. Thank you for having me. It was great. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. And now for the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. This episode is brought to you by yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Asima and Leverage. Leverage handles all production, creates the images that you see on my social media, and takes out all my awkward pauses. They are my secret magic bullet. You can visit them at getleverage.com forward slash better.